Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm talking with Lauren Belfer, the best-selling author of And After the Fire. The Holocaust is a subject of enduring fascination and horror, but it is rare to encounter a new way of approaching its shocking truth. In this novel that moves seamlessly back and forth between late 18th, early 19th century Europe and 21st century New York, the Holocaust acts as a brooding presence. Casting long fingers into a past where people unwittingly sow the seeds of its brutality and into contemporary life where characters still wrestle with the outcome of those long-ago events. At the heart of the novel is Johann Sebastian Bach, whose unknown and in some ways ugly fictional cantata links the generations. The novel starts with one of the most compelling opening lines I've ever read. American-occupied Germany, May 1945. He never meant to kill her. The afternoon had started out nice enough for war-ravaged Germany right after the surrender. As Corporal Henry Sachs reclined on the parapet of a ruined castle and enjoyed a smoke in the sunshine, he reflected that life was going fine. A cooling breeze whipped around him. The view across the valley spread for miles. Hawks soared. Church steeples marked the towns. A half-dozen castles perched on the distant hills. The war was over. He was alive. You couldn't ask for more than that, and he didn't. He was twenty-one years old and full of beans, if he did say so himself. At five feet nine, okay, in his boots, with dark hair, brown eyes, and a suave devil-may-care edge, he reminded himself of Humphrey Bogart. He'd signed up in forty-two, the day after he graduated from high school, and he prided himself on making the military work for him instead of the other way round. Like today... Soon the Third Army would be pulling out, and the Soviets would take over this part of Germany. Before the Americans said, Auf Wiedersehen, Henry had a hankering to do some sightseeing. He'd recruited his best buddy, Pete Galinsky, right now pacing around to take in the view, to join him. They'd borrowed, so to speak, a military jeep, and they'd gone on a drive. They'd visited medieval towns and toured old churches. In exchange for chocolate and cigarettes, the currency of the day, They'd bought lunch at a prosperous-looking farmhouse where they teased the kids, and Henry noticed that there wasn't a man in sight. He checked his watch. The time was going on 1,600 hours, 4 p.m. Let's start heading back, Henry said. Back meant Weimar, the city where they were based. Sounds good, Pete said. And now, please join me in welcoming Lauren Belfer. Hi, Lauren. I look forward to speaking with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Your website mentions that you wanted to write from the age of six, but you worked many different jobs along the way. How did you turn that childhood dream into reality? Well, it's true that when I was six years old, I decided that I wanted to become a writer. I really don't know why. It just came into my head one day as the inevitable thing that I was going to become And I spent my early years as a writer crayoning stories about heroic pets 
and about princesses conquering kingdoms on white horses, a little bit of girl power before that was really in fashion. Um, when I was in high school, I started writing poetry and some short stories, and it was my high school English teachers who really encouraged me. Um, I owe a tremendous debt to them for you know always being in the background for me. Um, I started sending out my poetry to literary journals when I was in high school, and I collected rejection letters from all the best places. But again, my teachers encouraged me to keep going. Um, as I got older, you know, I had to take jobs to support myself. I worked, let's see, I worked as a fact checker at magazines. I worked as a paralegal for several years. I worked as a file clerk at an art gallery, as a secretary, as a typist. And all the while I was getting up early in the morning to work on my fiction. The first short story I ever had published was rejected 42 times before it found an editor who loved it. And the second was rejected 27 times before it found an editor who loved it. I never um, told these editors that all of their fellow editors had rejected the story so many dozens of times. Um, but it just put something in my mind that, you know, you've really got to keep getting your work out there, that the certain way not to get published is to just have your two or three or four rejections and then say, well, this must not be very good and I'm going to give up now. So it taught me a really good lesson that persistence is a large part of the job of being a writer. That's wonderful. I mean, I guess you were collecting material in all those jobs as well. Well, that's true. I mean, in retrospect, you know, at the time, um, I, I was just... You know, as I said, trying to support myself like everyone else and then trying to carve out time to do the work that really seemed important to me. But yes, you know, so I worked several years as a paralegal at a law firm. Now, that's a world I can now draw on for my characters that I wouldn't have known anything about otherwise. And the art world, too. I mean, I had a really lowly job as a file, as a file clerk at an art gallery in Manhattan. And... Um, that was a door opening into a whole other world and, and the characters of that world. So in retrospect, I'm very grateful that I had this series of jobs on my way to becoming a writer. And how did you get picked up by HarperCollins? Um, well, my first novel, actually, City of Light, is with Random House. And... You know, there I was, struggling with these short stories. I tried to write some novels, never really got very far. Um, when I was about 30, I went to Columbia and got an MFA in fiction writing. And that really taught me even a greater level of discipline. And it gave me more courage to start writing novels um, or, to, or to, to push through to the end because I've had before then had had many dozens of ideas for novels that would kind of get into the first two chapters and then be finished. Um, but it was really that first novel. Um, one day I was back in my hometown, Buffalo, visiting my parents, and my son was young then, and my mom was babysitting. So I was just wandering around my hometown, um, I hadn't had a chance to do in many years and I went into the historical society there and they had an exhibit about Buffalo in 1901 
And what I discovered that day was completely shocking to me. Um, I'd grown up in a city that was severely economically depressed. All my girlfriends and I could talk about was when we were going to escape Buffalo. There was no opportunity there for young people. And no one ever mentioned to me, and all through my education, that the city had had such a glorious past. So I discovered it that day in the historical society. And then when I walked out, it, I suddenly felt like a door opening in my mind, really, that um, I was going to write a novel about my hometown and its glory days. And that's the book that became City of Light. Um, you know, that was the first historical fiction that I had ever written. And in retrospect, it seems to me very obvious that I should have found a place for myself writing historical fiction, but in fact, it never occurred to me until that moment. Yeah, but the fact was that I loved reading historical fiction, and in fact, my dad was a high school history teacher. So he and I, all through my childhood, we would talk about different periods of history that he was very interested in, and it was always... Um, very special time for us, you know, father and daughter, that we could sit and we had this special thing that we talked about, and that, and that was history. Um, and I would share with him what I was studying in school, and he would talk about what he was teaching. So when I started writing historical fiction, it seemed um, like the fulfillment of what I was meant to do. And, and suddenly I wasn't drifting or wandering anymore or starting these books and after two chapters giving up on them because now I had this focus. It became very personal, very meaningful to me to and, do it. And that book uh, did very well. It became a New York Times bestseller. Can you tell us just a little bit about the plot? I mean, what's going on in Buffalo in 1901 in your story? Um. In, in the plot of City of Light? Yes. Um, well, it opens um, with a woman in Buffalo who is the headmistress of a school. And a headmistress is the term that would have been used in 1901. And it is basically the story of her life there in Buffalo. And this is going to sound so crazy. It's also about the, the machinations surrounding the development of hydroelectric power, um, which if anyone had said to me, you know, well, you can't write a novel about the development of hydroelectric power. Um, but there I did because, you know, there was something that was so important in Buffalo at that time. You know, Buffalo in 1901 was a real center of industry and development and wealth. And I wanted to show through the eyes of my main character, Louisa Barrett, the headmistress of a girl's school, what was really going on in this community, um, what this sort of sweep of history around uh, the central figure of Louisa Barrett. Now, I, I have to stress, and, and this applies to all three of my novels, you know, I'm a fiction writer. I am not a scholar writing a, a treatise. So even though my novels are based on very important developments in history, you know, so 
hydroelectric power in the first. Um, a Fierce Radiance is a World War II story about the development of antibiotics. And then my new novel about music. Um, so they're based on these ideas, but they're all very personal. The stories are told through characters. And to me, that's the crucial part. You know, a, a novel has to be compelling. And it's this balance for me in historical fiction between how much you learn reading the book, which I'm sure, you know, many people are drawn to historical fiction because you learn so much, but you have to balance that with learning through character. I, I think of these books as, you know, the, the reader enters the book as I do as the author in a way, and we walk next to these characters as they experience everything that life brings to them. And what I hope is a compelling way. That's uh, that's such a lovely way to put it. Um, so tell us now about Af- and after the fire. Um, what drew you to this novel in particular? Well, when I was growing up, World War II felt very close in my family. Um, my family, like many other families, we lost family members during the Holocaust. And so, you know, even though decades had passed, those memories were still very fresh in the family. And my dad, as I said, was quite interested in the history of World War II, so it's something I I talked to him about. And then about, oh, 10 or 15 years ago, there began to uh, come up in the news very frequently stories about the discovery of works of art that had been lost or stolen during the war. And many of these works of art were right on the walls of museums, but their provenance, their history had been ignored for all these years. So whenever I saw these stories in the news, I read them, I followed up on them, not because my family was in a position to own works of art, uh, far from it, but because these stories resonated with me personally and because art and music had always been very important in my family. Um, So then one day, about 15 years ago, I received in the mail an announcement for a class being offered about the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And for some reason, I felt compelled to take that class. Um, I had taken piano lessons when I was a girl, and I'd gone to the to concerts of the Buffalo Philharmonic. But I didn't really know very much about classical music. So it was, in fact, a little odd. I I recognized that, that I felt this compulsion I had to take this class. And what I learned in the class really surprised me because Bach's music turned out to be more beautiful than I had ever imagined possible. But some of the sacred music... um, the librettos sadly, you know, lashed out at Catholics, at Muslims, at Jews, um, even at the Protestants of different denominations who lived in the next town. Um, you know, Bach lived in an era which was extremely intolerant. Um, it's sort of, we're right, you're wrong. That was the attitude. So the... So the fact that he did lash out in some of his works at other religions is not surprising. 
But to me, the more interesting question was, how, how do we react to that today? You know, there I am, and the music is so beautiful, and yet I have, my family has a history from the Holocaust, and so it, it's, you know, it's very hard to kind of reconcile oneself and come to terms with this beautiful music. So one day after class, I was walking home and I thought to myself, what would happen if I found a work of art that had been lost or stolen during World War II? And what if this work of art it was not a painting, which is what it seemed people would usually find, they'd find paintings. What if I found a lost masterpiece of music? And what if its libretto turned out to be ethically problematic and that the people who who find it in the novel, you know, really have to confront these issues of how do we cope with ethically problematic material from the past. And that was the moment where the book began, where I really began focusing on these issues. Um, at that time, I was finishing work on A Fierce Radiance, my second book. So while I was finishing A Fierce Radiance, I collected um, research materials for this for the new book. Um, so as I say, I got the idea about 10 years ago, and then I had about six years of full-time work on and after the fire. Um, it was very difficult to write in some ways. The, is, the issues that come up in it were difficult to confront. But I, I felt compelled to go on because the issues are very important to me. They are, and the issues are encapsulated in the title, right? Um, and After the Fire is a reference to the Holocaust, and, but also to other things as well. Yes, the title is quite meaningful to me. Um, first, it's a quote from the Book of Kings in the Hebrew Bible. And one of the characters in the book, uh, the composer Felix Mendelssohn, uses it in his oratorio, Elijah. And when Felix Mendelssohn died, um, his brother-in-law, uh, who was an artist, did a picture of him on his deathbed and wrote these words on, onto the picture, and then that was on his coffin afterward. And so I felt when I came upon these words and, and after the fire and knew the context for the characters in my novel, I felt therefore very close to them. But as I, as I thought more and more about this quote from the Book of Kings, I realized that the word Holocaust means a consuming fire. And so much of the novel is about how we go on after the tra traumatic events of World War II. And this applies no matter what side you're on. You know, how do you confront the past, whether you're Jewish or Christian, German, American? What about, you know, American soldiers who, who went to Europe during the war and liberated concentration camps? You know, how do they go on? So I, I felt when I read the, first read these words during my research that they really applied you know, not only to the characters in the past, but to the people today, to all the characters today, and how they try to reconcile themselves, no matter what their personal family backgrounds, to what happened during the war. 
So the story moves back and forth between the perspectives of Susanna Kessler in the present and Sarah Levy uh, with her associates and family members in 18th century Berlin, in early 19th century Berlin. So the prologue, uh, which I read in the introduction, in effect links the past and the present by connecting Germany and the United States right after World War II. What made you decide to tell the story using these parallel uh, but contrasting timelines? Well, after I got the idea for the story, and, you know, again, as I was saying earlier, you know, I'm not writing a kind of philosophical treatise. I'm writing a story based in individual characters and their families. So I started kind of sketching out in my mind who would be the, who would populate this story that I was trying to tell. And again, my books have always been like that. I, I get an idea, usually when I'm walking down the street, and I feel like a door is opening in my mind into a different world. And then I, in a kind of intuitive process, I begin meeting um, these the characters of this world. And so I decided first that my fictional musical masterpiece would be discovered by an American soldier in Germany at the end of the war, and that he would bring it back to America and figure out what it was and decide that he needed to hide it. And that when he died, he would bequeath it to his niece, Susanna Kessler. And it would be up to her then to try to figure out what it is. And she also decides that she would like to return it to the family in Europe that had originally owned it, if any of them had survived. And she doesn't know if, at the beginning if any of them had survived. So my first step then was to try to figure out with Susanna, essentially walking beside her, you know, figure out the history of this musical masterpiece. So this took me back in time, and I started reading about Johann Sebastian Bach, and I decided that Bach's eldest son, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, would inherit from his father the fictional cantata. And then as I started to read about his life, I was led in turn to a woman who was so compelling to me that I immediately knew I had to bring her into the book one way or another. And her name was Sarah Itzik Levy. And she was Wilhelm Friedemann Bach's only student in Berlin. She was a gifted musician, a harpsichordist. She was the daughter of a very wealthy man in Berlin. His name was Daniel Itzig. He was the king's banker, Frederick the Great's banker. And he made tremendous contributions to the stability of Prussia and the prosperity of Prussia. So here was something very unusual that I had never heard of. You know, a wealthy German-Jewish family participating in the leadership of the country at the highest levels, as as I said, her father was the banker to the king. Um, and she, in turn, as she grew older, participated, you know, she organized a salon that lasted in Berlin for 50 years, a musical salon. And as I read more about her, I learned that Berlin was filled with salons at this time. This would have been around 1800, the decade before and after. Um, And that these salons were organized by Jewish women and that Christians and Jews, aristocrats and commoners, all came to these salons 
and mingled together. It was an exceptional moment in German history, I think. Um, when you get a different perspective than when you look at what happened in the war, you know, this, for this moment, was a time when people did seem to gather in a kind of harmony. And I say a kind of harmony because always simmering under the surface were hints of of anti-Semitism. And, you know, I, when I do research into the past, I don't um, rely on history books that are written today. I try to go back and read the letters that people wrote to each other at that time, to read their diaries, um, to read memoirs that were written at that time. So I really can get a sense of... Um, walking in their shoes of what life must have been like for them when they had no knowledge of the future. And it was through reading letters that I discovered um, the, this kind of simmering anti-Semitism all through the background of what on the surface seemed to be this kind of glittering world of, of cultural salons. Um, and just to talk about my research a little more. Um, when I was working on my second novel, A Fierce Radiance, which, as I said, takes place in primarily in New York during World War II, um, you know, I set myself the task of reading every issue of Life magazine from 1939, when the war began in Europe, through 1945, when the war ended. And I also read months and months worth of the New York Times on microfilm. It hadn't yet been digitized, so um, any of your listeners who know what it's like to you know, sit at a microfilm machine, it's, it's very tedious work. It is, and, and it's really hard to read on a microfilm reader. Yeah, but you know, when you read books written today about America during the war, about the homeland during the war, they never, ever mention the possibility that America might have been bombed. I mean, America was not bombed. So the history books don't write about the possibility that they might have been bombed. But when you actually read the newspapers and magazines from that time, I realized right away that people assumed that America would be bombed. They had seen what happened with the bombing of London, with Rotterdam. Um, they assumed that that would happen in America, and particularly in New York. And the New York Times and Life Magazine, they were filled with articles about what to do during a, a bombing raid. And you know, I had to say to myself, well, imagine, you know, there you are at the breakfast table and you're reading your newspaper and it's telling you all these things that you have to do when when the bombs start falling. You know, that's something, of course, you very much take into your heart and it affects how you think about everything. Um, and I always remember an article in Life magazine about what to do with your pets during a bombing raid. Um when I was reading that, my son was young and we had a dog, a big golden retriever, you know, who was sort of the light of our lives. And this article said that you were supposed to tie your dog to the cloth foot, you know, those old fashioned bathtubs, the cloth uh, feet. So you were supposed to tie your dog to the 
to the foot of the bathtub and leave the dog there and go to the shelter. And your cats were supposed to be put in a cardboard box next to the dog and left there. And I thought, well, you know, as a parent, you know, how devastating to see your, chi- your child. I know my son would have been terrified leaving his big golden retriever behind while we ran to the air raid shelter and then the bombs are falling. So, you know, I know it's just a little point, but if you're writing about a family during World War II, that's a big part of their lives, of their daily lives. And, and that's the kind of detail that I try to find when I'm writing historical fiction so that, again, so that I really feel I'm capturing what it felt like to be alive then, not um, kind of pasting on what we know from the history books today about what the past was like, but the fears that they had then and the, the different emotions that they were trying to balance then. I think that's a really important point. I think really... As much as learning about the past, I think that's why people read, at least it's why I read, it's why I write historical fiction is because it gives you that opportunity to capture life in the moment. You know, I mean, this, the same thing still happens, right? I mean, when they evacuated for Katrina, they expected people to just leave their pets behind. And many people didn't. They didn't evacuate because they didn't want to evacuate without their dogs and cats. It's, it's a really basic thing that we, forget about because, you know, 50, 60 years in the past, it's our, we're already looking at the overall arc. But if you put it into a novel, you're, you're living in that moment and you have to recreate that moment. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I also look a lot at drawings and paintings of the era that I'm working with to get an idea of what people were wearing. And I think you get a lot of insight into into culture that way, too. So in the first part of my book, um, When Sarah Levy is a Young Woman, um, that's during the Enlightenment era, and the women wore these flowing classical dresses, very revealing. Um, you know, when you see Jane Austen, watch Jane Austen movies, uh, or movies of Jane Austen's novels, you see some of these kind of loose flowing clothes with very low necklines that were so common around 1800. And then as Sarah Levy gets older, and then I, you know, I look at the drawings of her nieces and so on. They're all very buttoned up with bonnets and your very high necklines. And you can see, oh, you know, we've switched into gradually into the Victorian era. And it's, it's this whole different way of, of looking at, at how people carry themselves, how, um, how they regard themselves. So fashion, I, I think, gives a lot of insight, too, into what a, what a culture is like. Yes, I agree, absolutely. Yeah, you do. Things. Uh, Google Images is my best friend. <laughs> I'm on there oh, all the time. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you can't use them because most of them are actually copyrighted images in one way, but just to look at them is amazing. Yeah, really, they they open up the doors in your mind as a writer. 
So let's talk about your characters themselves. Uh, when I was uh, researching for the interview, I read a New York Times article on you and your husband. So we'll get to him in a second. But um, the reporter implied that, that Susanna is in some ways a reflection of you. Now, of course, any character is to some extent a reflection of the author, right? There are creation. Uh, and so the, you know, even the antagonist is a reflection and they can be scarily fun to write. But um, it always seems to me that that's sort of um, um, a layperson's view, in a sense, you know, that it's it seems like um, an author's imagination can go beyond their own personality. And in fact, my best characters are not like me. They're more like how I wish I had been when I was 15 or 16. So how do you feel about that? And is Susanna or, or Sarah like you in some ways? And in, uh, or not, not so much to be revealing of yourself, but to be revealing of them. What, what is it about? How do you see them as characters? Well, Susanna is like me only in that she also grew up in Buffalo. So I gave her that. Um, but, you know, creating a character is very intuitive. And I, I'm sure you know this when you work. It, it's hard to put into words. But sometimes I think, you know, a character might have a little bit of this friend or a little bit of that friend, someone I knew when I was 10 years old brought in, you know, some reference that I might have found in my reading. And they kind of conjure themselves up and in this intuitive process so that I don't feel that Susanna or Sarah Neither of them are, are me or like me or meant to be me, except for the, the link to the common hometown. Um, they are completely themselves. And I'm sure you know this, too, that when you're working on a novel, the characters take on lives of their own. And no matter what direction you as the author want to push them into, um, they fight back. You know, they are who they are. And often when I'm doing research, you know, the most exciting part of the research is this kind of give and take with the characters. So I do a lot of reading before, you know, as I'm sort of working my way into the historical period, I do a lot of research. But the most compelling research I do is when I already know the characters, when I'm getting to know them. And in a sense, they are guiding the research that I'm doing. Um, so Susanna Kessler, for example, works for a family foundation. I didn't know anything about family foundations when I started, but because of her, I had to learn a lot about family foundations. You know, so I could make her work, and it was a very important part of her life, and I wanted to portray it in a realistic way. Um, Sarah Levy, in the past, um, she was very involved in the Jewish orphanage in Berlin. And so I learned a lot about what orphanages were like in the 19th century. And, you know, sometimes I'm asked, well, are Susanna and Sarah alike in any way? And I hadn't thought that they were, but then I realized that they are alike, they are in fact alike, as it happened in a very pivotal way, in that they both devote themselves to helping others. So uh, Susanna, by working for a family foundation and essentially spending her days giving away large amounts of money, and 
Sarah Levy, who became the primary financial supporter of the Jewish orphanage in Berlin, but did even more than give money. She was what they called an honorary mother to many of the orphans and you know, would go to the orphanage and spend time with them and supervise their educations and, and ha- help them establish themselves in life. And in fact, when Sarah died, she gave the bulk of her fortune to the Jewish orphanage and it thrived right through until November of 1942. And at that point, the children who were still there were all sent to Auschwitz. I thought they were alike too, in that they are both strong women. Um, you know, they're, they they have they both have a very strong sense of self. Um, but I also thought it was really interesting because they are distinctly women of different times, and I can't put my finger on exactly how what what makes them different. But you know, Susanna Kessler is very much a modern career woman. She's she doesn't encounter as much everyday anti-Semitism because she's living in 21st century Manhattan, but she's she's very aware of it because of her history, her family's history. And Sarah is, perhaps it's because she's younger when we meet her in part, but she seems to be more uncomfortable with, with the kinds of things that are said in her hearing at her, her salon, or she's... Um, more trusting, perhaps, or I mean, I'd like you to talk about it because they're your characters. I'd like to know how you see them, but but I do see them as being very distinct, very strong women. But one of them is clearly, you know, nineteenth century, and one of them is clearly twenty first century. Right. I think that possibly the main difference in Sarah's world is that she lives in a world governed by propriety. You know, she from a quite wealthy family, ran a salon for 50 years, and within that world, um, the rules of behavior were very, very strong. The sense of propriety. Um, And, you know, we see that in other novels, whether it's in Jane Austen, whether it's in Henry James, you know, this idea that there is a certain way to behave and that within society, People follow those rules. And this becomes very serious um, for Sarah because I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but there is an incident that actually happened in her life um, involving anti-Semitism. It became um, a famous incident in the first half of the 19th century, and a a play was written about it. Many articles were written about it. Something happened at her home, and... I have her react to that in a far different way than, say, Susanna would react today. Because for Sarah, maintaining the rules of propriety governed all. And I hope that I've portrayed that this was a good thing in a way, that Sarah knew what had to be important to her in that moment. And she let the people around her deal with this very outrageous thing that happened in her home, but that she felt her role was to bring everyone together to maintain the flow of the afternoon. 
And some readers have said to me, you know, that they don't respect her for that, that she should have stepped forward and, you know, made the protests that, in fact, other people in the scene do make, that, you know, she revealed herself as so weak, and how could she be like that? And she was such a strong woman in other ways. But see, this, to me, was part of trying to walk in the shoes of my characters and have them react the way they would have reacted at that time, not the way we want them to react today in the perspective, with the perspective of how women are supposed to be today. You know, she reacted based on everything she was raised with and upon the values that she thought were important. And I felt she was very, perhaps stronger for doing that. You know, looking at a broader view than just, you know, allowing herself to, to possibly lash out in anger at the, in the moment. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's one of the big differences between now and then. I mean, if you, it's not just how people behaved, but how people talked about things. I mean, if you read an Austen novel, nobody's, you know, nobody really gets down and says anything, right? It's all very polite and hidden and people can go for months and months and months, never letting on that they love other people because it's, you, you just don't show your emotions. It's not appropriate. And that's a huge okay. difference between now and then. And of course, sometimes, you know, like when you're beloved almost marries someone else because he doesn't realize that you love him it, it's not a good thing but at other times it's something i think we've really lost you know the the sensitivity to how other people will feel if we just say something that's right the nuances of words the nuances of character um and when i write about the past it, it's that that i really try to get at um these subtleties that that we don't pay that much attention to anymore. But then we have different things to pay attention to. So, you know, I'm not passing judgment here. I am just trying to... And there's something to be said for honesty, too. <laughs> That's right. So, um, so I mentioned your husband, which I would not normally do. And the reason I mentioned him is because he is a musicologist and he studies Bach. And so um, I was curious... What I mean, you're writing a novel. He's obviously not writing a novel. And so I, I thought that the contrast is because he also has a new book out called Bach and God. And I thought it would be interesting to discuss just briefly the difference in approach, um, what you learn from each other in this specific topic, you know, not personally. Um, right. And whether... Or whether you even talk about it. I mean, in some cases, spouses don't because they, they want to maintain their own sort of thing. But but what what is the difference between his approach to Bach as a musicologist and yours as a novelist? Well, I need to step back for a minute and say that he he had a tremendous contribution to this book because when I started, I didn't know very much about Bach beyond what I had you know, learned in my piano lessons and then in this class. Um, but I needed to create a fictional Bach masterpiece that would be plausible in every way. But I wanted that work of art to be so correct that if it were discovered tomorrow, uh, scholars would have to accept it as authentic. And so Michael and I worked very closely on creating this fictional masterpiece. Um, he is the one who wrote the libretto. 
and he wrote it in 18th century rhyming German, which was very difficult, even for such an experienced scholar as as Michael is. Um, and to do it, he relied on sources that Bach himself would have been familiar with. Now, some people say to me, well, you know, you're fictional cantata isn't really valid because Bach never wrote the librettos anyway. So who cares what some librettist put onto uh, Bach's masterpiece of music? But in fact, Bach himself was um, an ordained minister of music. And so although he did not actually write the librettos, he chose them. He was responsible for them and he could lose his job if he included anything that wasn't in line with what the church teachings were at that time. So he was responsible for this. Um, so as I say, Michael wrote the libretto to, and in such a way that it is completely plausible. He also wrote descriptions of the music based on a similar Bach pieces. And he arranged for us to go to um, a secret location. I'm not supposed to reveal what it is, um, where a person whom I cannot identify brought up from the vault uh, an actual composing score by Johann Sebastian Bach. I mean, a you know, priceless manuscript, and we spent an afternoon studying it. And that is that's how I was able to describe. Um, the, the fictional cantata in the novel from this experience of actually holding in my hands a composing score by Bach and seeing the, the power and strength of his creativity across those pages to see his drive and energy. And you see when he made a mistake, he would cross it out, cross it out, almost in anger that you know he had made a mistake. Um, you, his energy reflected in these ink blots and fingerprints from the ink, um, this kind of mad rush across the pages as if he, his pen is struggling to keep up with how quickly his mind is composing. And then these wonderful touching moments that you know, he'd, he'd have to wait for the ink to dry on the page he was working on before he could turn to the next page and start working. So he would write um, music in very small uh, notes at the bottom of the page while waiting for the ink to dry, so that he could remember what, what he, you know, what it was pouring into his mind when he was able to go to the top of the next page. So all these things I saw, and it it was Michael who made that possible. Um, That's so amazing. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. It's almost magical to see. I mean, I remember being in archives in Russia and seeing these documents that you can at least imagine someone that you're interested in has once touched. And it's it's just amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And so that's how we created the fictional cantata. And and we went on uh, four research trips to Germany together. And again, it was fantastic for us to to share those experiences, um, to walk the streets of Berlin as I tried to project myself into the city of the past, into the places that my characters would have gone. Um, so while I was doing this, Michael was completing his new book, Bach and God, um, which is, I think, his sixth or seventh book. He's written a lot of books about Bach. 
and um, you know he would give me drafts of his work and I would give him drafts of mine. It's because of him that everything relating to music in this novel is correct. It's sort of 100% correct. He wouldn't let me get away with taking any shortcuts at all. And uh, I'm great, you know, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for that. Um, and it, it, sometimes, it, you know, the only moments of tension we ever had were when, you know, I would say that X was true. And he would say, no, no, you can't say that. It's only 99.9% true. <laughs> There's a scholar for you. <laughs> right. So I'd have to, you know, put in some word that sort of it may be true or it's most likely true or, you know, so that kind of drove me crazy a little bit. But I think in the long run it paid off because I can I can count on everything in there that relates to the music. Uh, you know, I know that it's correct. Well, that's really useful to know. It sounds like it was a great uh, exchange. Uh, so this brings me, uh, because we're getting close to closing up now, to one thing I really found interesting about this novel is there's um, we seem to be in an age where uh, we're discovering that, that m- many great men had feet of clay. And in fact, some cases, sort of feet of nasty stinking mud, you know. So Jefferson, the great human rights activist, was right. uh, um, messing around with his 14-year-old slave girl. And um, uh, Woodrow Wilson is, you know, turns out to have been a committed racist. And right. you know, it's, it's always an awkward, I mean, in some ways, it's, I find it almost reassuring, you know, they were human after all. But... It's also, it's disturbing in many ways. You know, Bach is, as you said, the creator of this glorious music, and yet himself, he appears to have been a very intolerant man. Was that something that just developed in the course of the story? Was that always something that you were focused on from the beginning? Well, I was focused on that only in that I was looking at what these sacred works actually say and it's not you know my focus in the novel is not really on what Bach himself believed or didn't believe you know I I think he reflected the views of his time I think the more important question for us today is how do we react to these works of art what do these works of art say and how do we reconcile them to what we in general, believe today. And some people will say, well, you know, only the beauty matters. Anything in the words, that's irrelevant. We should only look at the beauty of Bach's music. Um, I take a different view. I think we, we have to face up to what these works of art actually do say today and decide how we're going to react to them. I... You know, I love Bach's music, and I listen to it every day. And, of course, Michael is a Bach scholar. So, you know, there's music. Bach's music is playing at our house every day. Uh, It means a very great deal to us. Um, And I listen to the music for emotional comfort. It has tremendous joy that it imparts. Um, But some of the works, not all of them, but some of the compositions do carry a message that's ethically problematic. And I simply think that we have to 
recognize that contradiction and hold those two things in our minds. I, I think the music becomes more powerful rather than less powerful when we understand the full context of, its, of, what, it, of what it's trying to get across. You know, the music is alive in a sense. It has to be brought to life by performance, which is done in our time. So when we are performing, bringing these works to life in our time, it's much, much more pressing an issue rather than, say, if we discover some document that, you know, someone might have written 300 years ago that's been in an archive all these years that might give a negative impression of one of our founding fathers, for example. Um, music has to be brought to life at any moment by performance. And so, what are we saying when we bring these things to life? That's, that, for me, is the, is the compelling point, more so than what Bach himself may or may not have believed. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think that's very important. I, I, w- I would agree with you that we have to... I, I'm not of the school that, you know, because it turns out that somebody whom we revered turns out to have had feet of clay, that we should therefore ignore the good things that they did. But I think we have to acknowledge the not-so-good things that they did, the, the right. problematic choices. Or in this case, as you say, it's not just Bach himself, but what does it mean that at a certain point in history that was considered to be an appropriate way of expressing religious sentiment? You know, how much of that is still left That's in right. the world? Because, in fact, a lot of it is still left in the world. That's the really disturbing part. Well, it seems to be coming back, doesn't it? It does. So what would you like readers to take away from And After the Fire? Well, first and foremost, for me, is I want readers to feel they've experienced a compelling story and that they've been involved with the novel's characters and that these characters have taken them on a thought-provoking and fascinating journey through time. That's always, when I write fiction, the most important factor for me, that people get caught up in the lives of the characters and care about these characters. Um, And I also hope that readers will discover the astonishing music that inspired me to write the novel. At the end of the book, I've included a list of my favorite recordings of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach and of Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn, who are also characters in the book. Um, And this is to guide readers in case they're curious about this extraordinary music. And there's also a playlist I prepared um, on my website where people can go and actually... um, you know, click on it, it's through Spotify. They can actually listen to the music that's discussed in the book. Because discovering the music was one of my great joys as I was writing the book, discovering more and more about the music. That's great to know. What are you working on now? Um, Well, I am working on my next novel, but I'm very superstitious, so I can't say anything more than that. But I appreciate you asking about it. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Lauren. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. This was really terrific. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Lauren Belfer about And After the Fire. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash laurenbelfer.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction. 
and follow us on Twitter at New Books Hustvik. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that, for one reason or another, don't fit into my interview schedule, so the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.